The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd like to go back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2 this evening and continue our consideration of the Gospel of John. Last time we looked at the beginning portion of John chapter 2 and Jesus and his first public miracle of turning the water to wine and after his baptism and now his first public miracle, his ministry is becoming more more prominent and more public uh, for those in, in Judea, and now this evening we'll focus on Jerusalem. And we'll pick this up here in John chapter 2 and in verse 12. After this, after the beginning of the miracles and turning of the water to wine and the wedding in Cana of Galilee, after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, his first time in Jerusalem after the announcement of his public ministry, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured over, turned over the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these hints, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, Forty and six years was this temple in the building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So now Jesus' uh, public ministry is beginning to be manifest, his first miracle. And I want, I want to understand and highlight for you the, the significance of what does Jesus do in his first public action. Now he goes back to Capernaum and spends time with uh, the disciples and with his family there ministering close to his home, <clears throat> close to his hometown. But what is his first action after the announcement of his public ministry, after his first miracle? He goes back to Jerusalem and he cleanses the house of God in his very first public action after the miracle in Cana of Galilee. And also you fast forward to 
the end of his ministry, what is the very first thing that Jesus does after he rides in on that colt, the foe of an ass, and they're laying palm trees at his feet saying, Hosanna in the highest. What's the very first thing that he does when he goes into Jerusalem for the last time? He cleanses the temple a second time. So the first time that he comes to Jerusalem in the onset of his public ministry, he cleanses the temple. And the last time that he comes to Jerusalem, they put everything back that he cleansed three years earlier. <clears throat> and he cleanses it the second time. And that gives us a very clear understanding, a very clear clarification of just how seriously the Lord takes purity in his worship and in his house. Amen. Um, <clears throat> we've been spending time on the radio going through the law and... Uh, one thing that stood out to me, uh, I think I mentioned this in, uh, I think, what will be an upcoming message, uh, considering the offerings. Uh, you have some prominent offerings, but you, you have a lot of lesser-known offerings. And I think this can be said for the whole law, uh, but I think it's very much highlighted in those offerings. That I don't think anyone would read the Old Testament <clears throat> and the way that God wrote the commands in the Levitical law and reach the conclusion that God is really okay with you worshiping him however fits your preference, right? I don't think you can uh, look at the Old Testament when he says you do this, this specific way. And then, guess what? Some people thought for a minute, Nadab and Abihu, who were in a position of, they were Aaron's sons. You know, they thought they could probably get away with it, for lack of a better term. And they said, you know what, I think, I think the Lord... Uh, would be happy with us adding our own little preference of strange fire to offer to the Lord. You know what happened? The Lord consumed them with fire, right? That's the Lord's opinion of, of you adding things to his prescribed commands of how he intends to be worshipped. So he goes into Jerusalem, the head, the hub of religious activity, the head of supposed uh, authentic religion in that time, but it had been corrupted by filthy lucre, for lack of a better term. So he goes there uh, into the temple, and he found oxen, sheep, and doves, and then money changers. Uh, I haven't studied this much myself, but it's my understanding there was uh, somewhat of a temple tax and almost kind of a currency transaction that was necessary. So therefore, uh, I'm sure these people were kind of similar to the publicans, that they rip people off. You go to the uh, temple and you want to exchange your money for temple money or whatever. Well, let's go ahead and add a 20% markup to that. Uh, if you're going to go to the temple, uh, you're supposed to bring your own lamb. You're supposed to bring your own bullet from your flock and one that's without blemish. And you're supposed to give the best to the Lord, but people are people, right? So what are they going to do? They're not going to you know, if you live in the suburbs, so to say, and you're, I'm not going to lug my animal all the way down to the temple. Instead, I'm just going to show up at the temple, and obviously where, uh, where there is uh, demand, there will be supply, right? So there's people who said, you know what? We're going to make this easier for you. We're going to make it more convenient for you. And you, can, you don't have to lug your, your bullock all the way from uh, your home to the temple. Instead, you can just buy a bullock right here. And what did they do? Well, obviously, they're going to add 20 to 30% to the value of that. Location, 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 right? And I'm all for capitalism. 
but capitalism has no place in the house of God and in the kingdom of God. So there are people that took advantage of that, right? They came and people came to make their offerings and they added their own little surcharge to a money exchange and they also had uh, no doubt elevated market prices for the animals that they were selling there in the temple. And as you well know, the Lord never commanded any of that, right? He told you to bring your own lamb. He told you to bring your own bullock, not for you to buy it when you get to the door of the temple. So he goes, <clears throat> and Jesus, the, the meek and the mild and the lowly Son of God, right? Uh, there, there's a, many places in Scripture where he is tender and loving and meek and mild. But in this instance, he was filled with righteous indignation. Amen. He was filled with holy anger. And he makes a scourge of... This is God, okay? Amen. The consuming fire of God. The, 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 name who, the God who takes the name of Jealous, capital J for himself, in the Old Testament. And he's jealous over his glory. And he takes a scourge of small cords and he drove all of those money changers out of the temple. He drove also the sheep and the oxen out and poured, turned over the money changers' tables. And he said, he said unto them that sold doves, that was the uh, poor man's offering, if you will. If you couldn't uh, bring a lamb or a bullock or some other thing, the, the, uh, the poverty option was two turtle doves, those that, that, told, <clears throat> that sold doves. He said, take these hints and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, when he uh, purges the temple in the last week when he enters in Jerusalem, a week before his crucifixion, he uses the phrase that we're more commonly uh, familiar with. God has ordained for this house to be a house of prayer, Right? But you've made it a house of merchandise. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but instead you've corrupted with filthy lucre. So what did, what did Jesus do? He, he purged the temple, right? He got that out of there. <clears throat> His disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house, <clears throat> excuse me, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house has consumed me. Now that is quoted from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, and I invite you to turn there so we can get the full wording as David here in Psalm 69 is writing this during the reign of Saul. And Saul, in his own pride, has neglected the, the tabernacle at that time, neglected proper worship, and was focused on many ungodly things and David was filled up as he, as he was filled up uh, on that battlefield when he went out to fight Goliath. He was filled up with the zeal of the Lord. He, he was filled up with the desire to defend the honor and the glory of God in the face of blasphemy. And, and he's filled up with that same, that zeal, that, that uh, godly, righteous indignation. And that, that zeal is channeled toward the house of God. David is frustrated with the environment under Saul and the house of God is being neglected. And he said, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. 
and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And in the uh, alternate wording in the King James center column reference, the zeal of thine house, the alternate wording for of is for. The zeal for thine house has eaten me up. And that, that word zeal literally means a, a passionate ardor, a heat. There's, a, there's an intensity. There's an intensity to his passion for the house of God. And the word eaten up literally means to just consume, to devour. So this, this zeal of the Lord's house is just consuming. I mean, my, my heart is just filled up with, with zeal, especially when I see so many other people being so, maybe not even lukewarm, but just downright cold. I mean, uh, that, that's the, uh, the, uh, the rebuke of the Laodiceans. That they were lukewarm. I wish you were cold or hot. But during this day, in, in David's day, um, most of the people were just downright ice cold. And, you know, that should, you know, we should never be jerks to people, right? We need to lovingly encourage them. But it should bother you. It should bother you, the lack of zeal for the house of God today. And, and the, you want to know the way a wildfire starts? <laughs> Is just one little bitty spark, right? And then it spreads and it grows and it grows. And what we really need is that, that zeal, that fire inside of us. And really that fire is just simply the Holy Spirit, right? That's how the Holy Spirit appeared on the day of Pentecost and, and uh, manifested itself in a powerful way. And 3,000 souls were added to the church. That fire of the Holy Spirit just consumed them. And we certainly pray that that Holy Spirit would descend in cloven tongues of fire on God's people today. That we would have that same zeal for God's house. And, you know, there is arguably nothing more. This is why the Lord said, I wish you were cold or hot. I'd rather, I'd rather you be dead cold than lukewarm. And the reason for that is because if, if you are cold, at least you could be heat, heated up. But the worst thing for Christianity is a carnal Christian that their actions don't back up the profession that they make because then we just look just like the world, you see? And that should bother you. That should bother you when you see people lukewarm. And that doesn't mean you always go stick your Nathan finger in the face and say, thou art the man, and you know, chew them out. No, lovingly encourage them. The best way you can do it is by you having that zeal and that fire yourself. Hopefully, the Holy Spirit will get a hold of them Hopefully, like the Holy Spirit's got a hold of you. But uh, you should have that kind, of, that kind of zeal and passion and, and fire, really, for the kingdom of God and for the house of God. It should bother you when people are, are cold and lukewarm. But it should also bother you when God's house is being corrupted and being made a, a house of merchandise, a filthy lucre. You know, it kind of makes me wonder... Um, and I say this with all the humility in the world. We do the best we can in the Primitive Baptist Church, and we sure aren't perfect. But I'll tell you, it really, I really wonder how many people, how many churches today, if the Lord showed up, would He feel comfortable? Would He commend them? But how many places have been made a house of merchandise that if Jesus showed up, I think He'd make a scourge myself. I think there'd be some things that'd be kicked out of the house of God if Jesus showed up today. And we certainly pray that we protect the kingdom of God from that. Amen. And we, we hope the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them folks too. <laughs> I mean, they may never become primitive Baptists, but there's some things that need to be purged out. 
of other places of worship, and, and they can be purged out by, this is, the, this is God manifest in the flesh in the second person of the Godhead, but I think that third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, can come and purge that out of those other churches too because he desires purity. He desires purity and holiness in the worship of his church. And also, I just want to make the very brief point that this is a temple, right? Um, a temple in a physical sense that was corrupted, supposed to be a place of uh, religious holiness and religious purity that had been corrupted by filthy lucre. But also keep in mind that our bodies are a temple as well, right? Our bodies are a temple. And we don't want to be pursuing the love of money as the root of all evil, right? There's some people in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 who pursued that. They pursued filthy lucre. They pursued the merchandise. Our houses, uh, our, the bodies of our temple are the temple of our bodies. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, right? It's supposed to be praying without ceasing, praying always with all prayer and supplication. Our bodies are supposed to be a house of prayer. And we certainly pray that they would never be a house of merchandise and filthy lucre, that we would be filled with covetousness because some people have. And that has caused them, as is addressed in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we see that exhibited in the rich young ruler, that some has caused some to err from the faith. And they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we certainly pray for purity in the house of God, and we certainly pray for purity in the temple of our bodies that have been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> these, these religious rulers here in Jerusalem, um, maybe some of the rumors of the uh, miracle of turning the water into wine, maybe it's made its way to Jerusalem, but they haven't really heard about this Jesus yet, okay? Uh, I want you to understand, the second time that he came, they knew who Jesus was, right? I mean, he came into Jerusalem, and they knew, they'd been hearing about him. He'd been in Jerusalem plenty of times chewing out the Pharisees and the scribes. But now he comes into Jerusalem there in that, in that latter time uh, on the cold foe of an ass, and everyone's falling down and worshiping him. But this first time, though, I don't think all those rulers probably, maybe a couple of them heard some rumors of, you know, a weird event up at a wedding up there in Galilee, but, but I don't think that they'd really heard about it. So I want you to think about it. They didn't necessarily know who this guy was, right? And then the, this guy has the audacity to come in and make a scourge and start running people out of the temple. And by the way, just as a side note, uh, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if those Pharisees and scribes were taking a little bit of cut off the top, <laughs> okay? Uh, so most likely... It's not just those men making money. I, I bet there's a good chance those wide and sepulchre Pharisees were making some money off the top. So they're going to lose money on this too. So, so he shows up and he runs all these people out. And they say, essentially, who are you? Who are you? What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest that? Who do you think you are? You're coming into the temple and running these people out? And Jesus said, and... Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The only sign I'm going to give this generation is I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, and I'm going to be resurrected. And if you won't believe on that, you won't believe on anything. You know, that's what, uh, that's what Jesus said when he gave the, in my mind, the story, not the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And he said that, that, that rich man looked up from hell in torment. 
And he said, let me go tell, let me go tell uh, my family members about what they need to do to avoid this. And he said, look, if they've got the law and the prophets and they won't believe that, they won't repent, even if somebody was resurrected from the dead. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened, right? Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the same people that hated him before still hated him after because they were of their father, the devil, and they manifested that. So he said, what, by what authority do you have, what sign are you going to give us that you have the right to do this? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And you just know the Jews had a meltdown when they heard this, right? Forty and six years we've, we spent building this temple. You think you're going to build this temple in three days? And he spake of the temple of his body, the temple of his body, that his body would be resurrected after three days. And that was the sign. That was the plumb line. And they rejected it. They wanted a sign. He gave them a sign. And guess what? They still rejected it. They still rejected the sign. <clears throat> he spake of the temple of his body. But his disciples, though, by the way, we, we won't look at this, but there is this very interesting interaction. He says some similar things um, during that last week. And he goes into the temple and he, he, he has this big argument with scribes and the Pharisees again and then right after that the disciples are leaving the temple and they said Jesus isn't this temple just awesome like in this in this temple just beautiful and he said yeah yeah that's okay it's all going to be torn down that's when he gives the Olivet discourse and tells them all about that but even the disciples thought very highly of that temple but then once he was resurrected from the dead, that's when they kind of started putting some of this stuff together, right? Well, I say they started putting it together. That's probably some things he talked about for 40 days before he was ascended, right? He just, uh, I doubt they came to this idea on their own. He said, you remember three years ago when I said this and then I said it again and again and again? This is what that means, right? So now the disciples, when he was risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus has said. Now, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, and many believed in his name, which he saw when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, these miracles are not specifically highlighted here. Um, you know, remember later on here in the last chapter of John, he said, if we wrote out in depth, not, not, not if you just listed them out about the number of miracles, but think about... Many of these miracles um, have a whole chapters devoted to them, right? Um, it literally, if Jesus, if, if, if the Holy Spirit inspired men to pin down every single miracle that Jesus performed here in this world, he said, the world could not contain the books of it. And that's not hyperbole. I mean, I, I thought about that very often. Jesus is, think about him going to uh, heal Jairus' daughter. And he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. And this, this woman with the issue of blood touches his, the hem of his garment. And they have a 60-second conversation. And then he goes and, he, and then he ends up uh, healing Jairus' daughter. Well, that's almost a whole chapter of interactions. But his, his uh, interaction with that lady of the issue of blood is a one- to two-minute interaction. You see? And... 
That's the kind of interactions he had with everybody everywhere he went. So the Spirit of God did not inspire every single one of these miracles to be highlighted. And whatever miracles he did in Jerusalem after he purged the temple are not highlighted. But they must have been very prominent and they must have been very apparent. And not only that many people uh, took notice of that, these are the miracles that Nicodemus took notice of when he came to him by night when he was still in Jerusalem and said, the things you're doing, we know that he has to have come from God. That's how noticeable and apparent these miracles were. But the miracles are not articulated here for us. Powerful miracles that Jesus did here in his first visit to Jerusalem. And there were some that believed on his name when they saw the miracles that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And he needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. There's some people a little bit later on in John chapter 6 that primarily followed him for the loaves and the fishes that they got out of it. At this time, it says they believed, and, you know, I'm, I'm always very hesitant. I, I don't have the scriptural knowledge to definitively say that anyone is a false professor. Um, there are people that I don't have confidence in, but I, I appreciate the, the, I have my own opinions about Judas Iscariot, but the, uh, <clears throat> what the disciples said in Acts chapter 1 about Judas Iscariot is they said, he went to his own place. <laughs> he went exactly where he's supposed to go. We don't have a lot of confidence in him, kind of like Simon Magus. Simon Magus, I believe, in time, in Acts chapter 8, manifested that he most likely was a false professor. But Peter wasn't willing to cast him in hell. He said, I perceive that you're in the gall of it. I perceive you're in a really bad spot, and I hope God will grant you repentance if you're, if you're just confused. But he wasn't willing to throw anybody in hell. And it's not our place to do that, right? But... It does say they believed, and I'll take it for what it says. Right. You know, it could be that these are children of God, and many children of God struggle with this, not just in Jesus' day, but in today as well. Sometimes they believe with beginning uh, the wrong understanding. Maybe they're brought to a belief based on an experience instead of an authentic belief in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who have those kind of uh, struggles today. They're, they're brought to a belief, but their, their belief is not solely in Jesus Christ. Their belief is in the experience, right? Yeah. Their belief is, is in some near-death experience. And you know, oh man, if I survive this, I'm going to serve the Lord. You know, and Their belief is not necessarily in Jesus Christ. Their belief is in the power of the experience in their life. So I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to make anybody a false professor and say that, that you're going to hell. But these people, it says they believe, that's what the Holy Spirit said, but they definitely believed at this time with the wrong motives. So Jesus simply did not commit himself unto them. He, he didn't have as much confidence in them at that time. You know, there, there are times that he brought people very closely into his fellowship, and there's sometimes that he didn't. And he understood perfectly that these people, that they believe on me, but they're believing in this moment for the wrong reasons. So therefore, I'm not going to commit myself fully unto them. Now, now my disciples, they're believing for the right reason, right? So I'm going to bring them into my close fellowship and communion. And says summarizes this in verse 25 by simply saying, And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man, right? He knows them. He knows the thoughts and the intents of their heart. You know, if uh, 
If there happened to have been a true false professor there, Jesus knows that, and that's Jesus' business, not ours. But he knew, by the way, uh, think, about, uh, think about the rich young ruler. This is a, gr- a good example, I believe. Um, he knew the exact, pro- the, the rich young ruler was a zealous child of God who had a personal struggle and a wrong perception, right? right? And he showed up with that, with that false perception, and Jesus puts his finger right on the pressure point, right? He knew what was in man. He knew what, he knew what this guy's problem was. One thing's thou lackest. Yes, I'm thankful you're, you think you're obeying the rest of the law, all except for that last commandment that talks about covetousness. So he puts his finger right on his pressure point, and you know what? He wasn't willing at that time to make the sacrifices necessary to be in the close communion and fellowship and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that. He knew what was in him. And you know what? He put his finger on the pressure point. And many people, when you put the finger on the pressure point, they repent. They repent. But many people approach Jesus with wrong perceptions for the wrong reason. Sincere children of God, right? Approach Jesus with bad ideas and the wrong perception. And what does Jesus typically do? He usually reveals that incorrect perception to him, right? But in this instance, he understood that these people were the babes of the babes in Christ. If you let me put it like that, right? They, they were not following him with a desire to truly leave your nets and sell all for the kingdom. Instead, they were following him primarily because they had seen that something stirred in their soul, right? If these were children of God, something stirred in their soul because they'd never seen this before, but their head had not really figured it out yet. And he, Jesus knew all that. He knew all that. And he did not bring them into his close fellowship and communion at that time because they were a little too immature for that close communion with him at that time. But Jesus, again, I just want to highlight and leave you with the thought that both times, the first time and the last time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the very first thing he did was go cleanse the temple. That is how seriously God takes the purity the holiness and the way in which we conduct ourselves in the church and in the kingdom of God and also in the temple of our bodies. I mean, this idea that it doesn't really matter what you do in worship, that is not Jehovah God of the Bible. Amen. You just can't read anything in the Bible and get the idea that Jesus, that Jesus is really just okay with you just putting your own flavor on whatever you want to do. <laughs> I mean, you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. And there were some people that thought, oh, yeah, Jehovah God will be totally happy with us making people's life easier, right? It's all about the people. It's all about convenience. We always we want to talk about a seeker-sensitive movement, right? We want to make it easier for the people, right? We want to we just make it more convenient for the people that are going to temple. And Jesus, God manifested in flesh, shows up and says, you know what? I never told you to do any of this. Get it out. <laughs> Get it out. And that's how seriously the Lord takes the purity of worship and the purity in his kingdom. And may he bless us to maintain that according to his word and according to his will. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. 
Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.